This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Polaris by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read for us by Jim Moon of the Hypnobobs podcast and the Hypnagoria website. Join us for a talk about it afterwards. Polaris by H.P. Lovecraft Into the north window of my chamber glows the pole's star with uncanny light. Through all the long hellish hours of blackness it shines there, and in the autumn of the year, when the winds from the north curse and whine, and the red-leaved trees of the swamp mutter things to one another in the small hours of the morning under the horned waning moon, I sit by the casement and watch that star. Down from the heights reels the glittering Cassiopeia as the hours wear on, while Charles's wane lumbers up from behind the vapour-soaked swamp trees that sway in the night wind. Just before dawn, Arcturus winks ruddily from above the cemetery on the low hillock, and Coma Berenices shimmers weirdly afar off in the mysterious east. But still the pole star leers down from the same place in the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye, which strives to convey some strange message, yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey. Sometimes, when it is cloudy, I can sleep. Well, do I remember the night of the great aurora, when over the swamp played the shocking coruscations of the demon light, after the beams came clouds, and then I slept. And it was under a horned waning moon that I saw the city for the first time. Still and somnolent did it lie, on a strange plateau in a hollow betwixt strange peaks. Of ghastly marble were its walls and its towers, its columns, domes, and pavements. In the marble streets were marble pillars, the upper parts of which were carven into the images of grave-bearded men. The air was warm and stirred not. Overhead, scarce ten degrees from the zenith, glowed that watching pole star. Long did I gaze on the city, but the day came not, when the red Aldebaran, which blinked low in the sky but never set, had crawled a quarter of the way around the horizon. I saw light and motion in the houses and the streets. Forms strangely robed, but at once noble and familiar, walked abroad, and under the horned waning moon men talked wisdom in a tongue which I understood, though it was unlike any language I had ever known. And when Red Aldebaran had crawled more than halfway round the horizon, there were again darkness and silence. When I awaked I was not as I had been. Upon my memory was graven the vision of the city, and within my soul had risen another and vaguer recollection, of whose nature I was not then certain. Thereafter, on the cloudy nights when I could sleep, I saw the city often, sometimes under that horned waning moon, and sometimes under the hot yellow rays of a sun which did not set, 
but wheeled low round the horizon, and on the clear nights the pole star leered as never before. Gradually I came to wonder what might be my place in that city on the strange plateau betwixt strange peaks. At first, content to view this scene as an all observant, incorporeal presence, I now desired to define my relation to it, to speak my mind amongst the grave men who conversed each day in the public squares. I said to myself, This is no dream. For by what means can I prove the greater reality of that other life? In the house of stone and brick, south of the sinister swamp and the cemetery on the low hillock, where the pole star peers in my north window each night. One night, as I listened to discourse in the large square containing many statues, I felt a change, and perceived that I had last a bodily form. Nor was I a stranger in the streets of Alathaway, which lies on the plateau of Sarkis, betwixt the peaks of Noton and Cadiphonek. It was my friend Alos who spoke, and his speech was one that pleased my soul, for it was the speech of a true man and patriot. That night news had come of Dicos's fall, and of the advance of the Inutos, squat, hellish, yellow fiends, who five years ago had appeared out of the unknown west to ravage the confines of our kingdom, and finally to besiege our towns. Having taken the fortified places at the foot of the mountains, their way now lay open to the plateau, unless every citizen could resist with the strength of ten men. For the squat creatures were mighty in the arts of war, and knew not the scruples of honour which held back our tall grey-eyed men of Lomar from ruthless conquest. Alas, my friend, was commander of all the forces on the plateau, and in him lay the last hope of our country. On this occasion he spoke of the perils to be faced, and exhorted the men of Olathaway, the bravest of the Lamorians, to sustain the traditions of their ancestors who when forced to move southward from Zobnar, before the advance of the great ice sheet, even as our descendants must some day flee from the land of Lomar, valiantly and victoriously swept aside the hairy, long-armed cannibal No-Kefs that stood in their way. To me, Alos denied a warrior's part, for I was feeble and given to strange faintings when subjected to stress and hardships but my eyes were the keenest in the city. Despite the long hours I gave each day to the study phonotic manuscripts and the wisdom of the Zobnerian fathers. So my friend, desiring not to do me to inaction, rewarded me with that duty which was second to nothing in importance. To the watchtower of Thapnen he sent me, there to serve as the eyes of our army. Should the Inutos attempt to gain the citadel by the narrow pass behind the peak Noton, and thereby surprise the garrison, I was to give the signal of fire, which would warn the waiting soldiers and save the town from immediate disaster. Alone I mounted the tower, for every man of stout body was needed in the passes below. My brain was sore dazed with excitement and fatigue, for I had not slept in many days. Yet was my purpose firm, for I loved my native land of Lomar, and the marble city of Olathaway, 
which lies betwixt the peaks of Noton and Cadiphonek. But as I stood in the tower's topmost chamber, I beheld the horned waning moon, red and sinister, quivering through the vapours that hovered over the distant valley of Banoff, and through an opening in the roof glittered the pale pole star, fluttering as if alive, and leering like a fiend and tempter. Methought its spirit whispered evil counsel, soothing me to traitorous somnolence, with a damnable rhythmical promise, which it repeated over and over. Slumber, watcher, till the spheres, six and twenty thousand years, have revolved and I return to the spot where now I burn. Other stars anon shall rise to the axis of the skies, stars that soothe and stars that bless with a sweet forgetfulness. Only when my round is o'er shall the past disturb thy door. Vainly did I struggle with my drowsiness, seeking to connect these strange words with some lore of the skies I had learned from the phonetic manuscripts. My head, heavy and reeling, drooped to my breast, and when next I looked up, it was in a dream, with the pole star grinning at me through a window, and over the horrible swaying trees of a dream swamp, and I am still dreaming. In my shame and despair, I sometimes scream frantically, begging the dream creatures around me to waken me ere the Inutos steal up the pass behind the peak Noton and take the citadel by surprise. But these creatures are demons, for they laugh at me and tell me I am not dreaming. They mock me whilst I sleep, and whilst the squat yellow foe may be creeping up silently upon us. I have failed in my duty and betrayed the marble city of Olathaway. I have proven false to Alos, my friend and commander, but still these shadows of my dream deride me. They say there is no land of Lomar, save in my nocturnal imaginings, that in those realms where the pole star shines high and red Aldebaran crawls low around the horizon, there has been naught save ice and snow for thousands of years and never a man save squat yellow creatures, blighted by the cold, whom they call Eskimos. And yet, as I writhe in my guilty agony, frantic to save the city whose peril every moment grows, and vainly striving to shake off this unnatural dream of a house of stone and brick, south of a sinister swamp and a cemetery on a low hillock, the pole star, Evil and monstrous, leers down from the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye, which strives to convey some strange message, yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. Hi, I'm Jim Moon. And we're going to be talking about Polaris by H.P. Lovecraft, yes, which is from a, for some amateur magazine called The Philosopher, published December 1920. So the fact that it was published in December and the fact that it's, it's 
uh, got a North Pole in it, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> um, makes it a Christmas story, in my view. This is the closest I've seen to a Love H.P. Lovecraft Christmas story. Now, the only other one is um, perhaps The Festival, which is set Festival. in winter. Mm. That's a Dunsany-style story as well, right? Um, so it's similar kind of of gods and men, but it's a bit more veering towards his Cthulhu mythos. Um, I think we have a, a reference to the Necronomicon in that one, and a Necronomicon quote, but it's still kind of pre-Cthulhu mythos, as it were. <laughs> That's from 1923, written in 1923, published in 1925, issue of Weird Tales. Huh. So, uh, do we know what he thought of Christmas? Because, you know, Tam, before the start of the podcast, was saying he knows somebody who has a Cthulhu doll or something with a, a Santa hat on it. <laughs> it's Christmas Cthulhu. He was he was nominally Christian, wasn't he? Uh, nominally. I mean, I think with Lovecraft, he, was, um, he wasn't a religious man, famously, but at the same time, he was a traditionalist and... Um, I know he wrote, he wrote several poems based on Christmas. Huh. And he'd write huh. poems for friends for, as, you know, to go in Christmas cards. So he did enter into the spirit of the season in his own way, I think. He didn't worship, right. like, multiple gods? Like in his <laughs> <laughs> Those are his readers. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think he actually believed any of that stuff. He just thought it was cool. <laughs> um, but I, I was thinking about, uh, you know... The characters in in these in these stories they're they're kind of like they're much closer. He is much more more like his characters than almost any other author is like his characters to me. Like uh, what I was reading about this story is that he's got he wanted to fight in World War One and wasn't able to. Um, he he felt like uh, he had something con- to contribute but wasn't. Uh, maybe physically sturdy enough to do so. Well, that's it. If he, fa- he did try to join up and failed the medical, which uh, he took rather hard. <laughs> do you know what I think failed? You do, you see, hmm? do you know which thing failed? Um, no, I'm not entirely sure what he, what he failed on. Um, well, probably, he, not, probably not Eldritch gibbering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's probably, if, if it's like the character, he's subject to fainting fits or whatever mm. uh, when confronted by shocking things um he he keels over and paralyzes himself or something <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> he couldn't do five pull-ups but his eyes were good right that's the idea is is the story is he's, he's, he's still got something to contribute he, his eyes would be good he'd be good up in a tower but uh, of course he fails in his task whoever the narrator is the right. unnamed narrator he he falls asleep on the job, which I, I don't know. If, if, if Lovecraft really liked his snoozing, didn't he? <laughs> so he's writing about his I, dreams. I almost felt like it was a Philip K. Dick story. Like you don't know sort of if the uh, present is the dream or if the past thing is the dream. Yeah, he he gets confused, and I, I want to figure out what kind of story this is. So it's I don't think it's exactly a. Uh, uh, reincarnation story. What would you? How would you classify what happens to? Uh, well, it's, it's almost like a mind transfer kind of story that he has these dreams and 
then somehow ends up almost switching places. He wants mm-hmm. to, as he says, you know, I wasn't content with being an observer of this fantastic ancient city, and eventually he becomes part of that. He gets but a then, body. But yeah, but then he's in the waking world, or the waking world version, is suddenly the poor sod who was supposed to be on lookout and stitched up by the pole star. <laughs> and yeah. it's like there's a bizarre kind of switch across time of personalities. That's kind of how I read it, rather than... Um, kind of a descent into madness or a, a one's yeah. a dream and one isn't. It's Maybe it's like alternate but, realities and going back and forth. Well, it certainly doesn't fit the facts of, you know, uh, history as far as, uh, you know, uh, prehistory, I should say. We don't really think that there was a cannibal. Uh, I, I guess there, there was the, there was supposed to be like long, hairy, uh, guys, I think they're supposed to be like Neanderthal, and I don't think there were any Neanderthal in North America. And I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure the story's set in North America. I just assume it, sort of, <laughs> uh, because of the Inutos invading. It could mm. be Greenland, I suppose. Um, well, there's a late, there's a reference to the uh, no kef. The, the, right. The race he mentions in um, one of his revision stories, the horror of the museum. And he refers to them as the the myth thing of Greenland ice. Ah, it's it's also a little bit unclear. I I heard the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast. They talked about where this story is set, and you know it's set near a swamp, uh, but also looking you know north to the pole star, and. There's like cold mountains nearby, and I was thinking, well, there's not really a lot of swamps. Swamp is sort of a, I don't know, southern idea, you know, like Florida <laughs> or. Well, thing is, you can you can have like peat bogs, and um, I mean, you yeah. do. There are like you know, like well, you wouldn't call them swamps, but there are like marshes and fens in like northern England, northern Europe, and I mean, I know because they found like you know, if I some Vikings used to bury their dead in these peat bogs, which mm-hmm. preserves them, which is very handy for archaeologists. There, there are also, um, you know, lots of wetlands in northern Canada. Mm. It, yeah, didn't they mention Eskimos, the squat yellow men? Yeah, so the, uh, I'm assuming that the Inutos, are the, who are so good at fighting, they kick these, uh, these gray-bearded guys' asses um, somehow. And, and and they're very uh, they they don't understand honor so they so they always win in the battle which to me makes it sound like they're using gunpowder or something and these guys <laughs> don't don't have the technology and so they're they're relying on we were betrayed and stuff like that they fight dirty yeah they fight mm. dirty somehow which uh, it, you know he says they have to fight with a strength of ten men uh, each. Well, I don't think he, they could they could do that. So it might have been, you know, exaggerated. But it's interesting. Um, so there's other Lovecraft stories that use this uh, sort of the way you're phrasing it, Jim, is the, sort of a switching places. Wasn't uh, there's a one that was published in Astounding or Amazing that uh, the Shadow some, Out of Time. That one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean that that's kind of. I see kind of Polaris is the seed idea they'd lately go back to for Shadow Out of Time, which is, well, like a small novella, actually, of this 
you know, mind transfer, uh, you know, a guy who's possessed literally and his consciousness is taken back to the remote past to this, uh, an antediluvian city, which, uh, um, but in far greater detail in the same way as kind of Dagon is, um, almost like a rough draft of the call of Cthulhu. <laughs> Lovecraft did go back to early works and say, well, that idea was good. And I tossed it off in a couple of pages, but now <laughs> 10, 20 years on, I can really do a lot more with this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also around the same period as Polaris is another story called the tomb, which is a similar kind of mind of an ancestor mind of the present day gets mixed up together. And that one, that one also, I was reading that one the other day, and I, it makes me think it's like a, a kind of like a, a switch over to, to the outsider. It's like the outsider from, <laughs> like a guy goes into the the tomb, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and wants to live in there, you know, mm. instead of coming out of the tomb and wants to live outside <laughs> of it. It is mirror mirror universe uh, twin. <laughs> He's, it's it's kind of he's sort of just you know his character is just like hanging out in graveyards in doomed cities <laughs> so they gotta go find advent, uh, adventurous ways to interact with them mm. what about the um, the the people who live in this city I, it's it seems like sort of an idealized uh, you know cross between Atlantis and you know the the uh, maybe Athens or something like that they've you know they're all philosophers and they've got mm. libraries and it just seems like uh, this is a, a sort of a collection of different ideas with a whole bunch of place names that you know they sound like real places at least in your dream they they they, they sort of make sense um, is that does that fit into that you know sort of thing of the la- a little bit later where they've got many many authors writing about you know Atlantis and newly discovered Lemuria and I mean some of the names in there sounded like Lemurian. Well, I, b- I believe I think these um, references to the land of Lomar right. in the writings of Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard. It does sort of fit in with this kind of alternative, unknown ancient history of the world, which between the three of them, they kind of fleshed out. So, you know, there was this age of Hyperborea, the age of Conan, and the age of King Cull, um, the age of Atlantis, and the age of the Elder Ones. (laughs) Um, Online, there are like Cthulhu Mythos timelines where you can look and see all these bits of where Smith and Lovecraft and uh, Howard filled in these lost epochs of forgotten history where you have Lomar, Lemuria, Mu, Rylier, um, Antarctos and all these strange civilizations that now the world of men has forgotten. Mm. (coughs) Um, But also Lomar turns up in Lovecraft's later writings as part of his dream world. Ah. Um, and it becomes like part of his dreamlands, and it seems to be. It's kind of, well, is it, was it a real place that became a myth, and then now it would still exist in the land, this alternative dream dimension he invent, invented? Or is Polaris, is it a case of a man being sucked into the dreamlands and 
again, there's kind of someone from the Dreamlands has switched places in this body. <laughs> well, uh, the only uh, other idea I was thinking of, other than you know, mind switching or reincarnation, was um, uh, atavism. You know, uh, this is the word I came came across when I first read uh, the Rats in the Walls, where the narrator there is is re- renovating an old ancestral home in mm. England and uh, discovers, I don't know, <laughs> a penchant for uh, <laughs> some strange foods. <laughs> um, and when he does so, it's explained, and so he's degenerating into his earlier ancestral... Uh, it's it's because his ancestors were like that, that he's like this. Well, that's it. He's and, his, his genetics are unlocking these memories right. as he goes further back, isn't it? But... <clears throat> Jack London was really into that. Uh, he he put the, he put that into a lot of his stories. Where yeah, it's sort of is that like Jung? Is that is that the uh, official line where it comes from? Uh, it's just sort of tied into that. Like, I think kind of the ideas of race memory were kicking around before Jung, but kind of Jung. <clears throat> sort of drew on them and polished them with the idea of archetypes of these common deep-rooted things we all share in the subconscious. Right. Um, but, uh, but the idea of atavism in, in the kind of rats in the walls or like in this story is more kind of the idea that there might be a massive race memory of the, you know, you are carrying about your ancestors' memories in your genes and uh, <laughs> right, in the right bro, conditions you could revert back and travel back down the uh, evolutionary right. path. Because it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it has to be that he can't come from a race of yellow men, right? The main narrator <laughs> has to come from a, of a gray-bearded, wise, mm-hmm. you know, honorable, noble uh, group of people whose city is, you know, sparkling and shiny with marble um, and, and was destroyed by dishonorable yellow hordes of... It's a yellow peril story, right? It's a invasion of, of the... The yellow, the squat yellow men from the east. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a parallel to like the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, overrun by the barbarian hordes who, right. you know, who don't who don't fight by the rules of war that have been worked out by the Roman and Greek states. They just charge over the rice and butcher everybody. <laughs> they don't sort uh, of beat it and, 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 and do it formally. And uh, if you fall off your horse, you wait for him to pick up his sword, and you then you duel like men. And they just kill everything. Yeah. Uh. Uh, the other uh, the other thing that I I think this is a really good example of this story is is something that you see in I think a lot of Lovecraft especially after reading this I said you know what he's doing it again that's what he's doing. <laughs> that's why it's so cool is he starts the story a certain way giving a certain set of words and then he finishes the story basically the same way mm-hmm. giving a sense of uh, it's a circle right that, yeah this guy's trapped in, in a time period. So he starts off saying, you know, uh, I look out my window into the great vault of the sky and I see Polaris and it's winking at me like a, uh, it's a winking at me a message that I will know, uh, that it doesn't know what it's, it's saying. And then he goes and stares at this long enough until he falls asleep and then c- comes back to the end and he says, now I'm looking out my window and I'm staring up at, a, at an eye in the sky that says, I've got a message for you, but I can't remember what the message is. 
and that that parallel uh, description, I, it it fits so many of his stories. Like even um, you know much more horrific style stories, he sort of comes back and gives you those same few phrases again, and it it, it it's it's quite striking it, it, as a style. You were saying this is a Dunsany esque story without him having read Dunsany, right? Well, this is it. Um... It's in these what's called, you know, his Dunsian mode, but it was written a year before he'd read any of Lord Dunsany. So it's kind of, I know he thought it was quite, quite strange that, you know, this author he fell in love with, his own style was approaching the same territory creatively, as it were. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think that this is also quite heavily influenced by Poe as well. Because um, I think it's, it's such a short story, as these, as you say, these repeated phrases. I mean, you could see it as an extended, like, prose poem. Mm. And, and certainly these long Poe prose poems about these kind of, you know, mythical lands and ancient dooms. Can you think of an example? Because I, I, I've not read all of Poe, but... Um, uh, I, I have a reference somewhere here. Sure. Uh, Only- Silence a Fable, that's a Poe one. Oh, okay. And Shadow, a Parable. Oh, all right. Um, we'll check those out. Hmm. I'm, I'm always, always afraid of Poe because I think I'm not going to get this, and then <laughs> once I get into it, I really, really appreciate it. Mm. But it, it, it's very intimidating, and it shouldn't be. It's so good. Well, sometimes he can be inti- very intimidating. I know when I did some Poe readings the other year, um, there's one, uh, Lygia. It's almost impossible to read uh, aloud and make sense of because the sentence construction is labyrinthine of clause after subclause, <laughs> and critics think he was actually satirizing Gothic excesses in, in writing it in such a Rococo fashion. But it, it, it is hard to read. You can get lost in the sentence of where are we going with this? I'm completely battered by adjectives and strange concepts. And is, is there a full stop in sight? I don't know. <laughs> The only the only Dunsany uh, story that I I've read recently, at least, is uh, uh, one I really really liked called The Highwayman. It's a very sh- short story, and it's not really like this story, other than it's got really great writing and it's got that repetition where you, mm. you say something and then you get uh, the repeated line and then another giant paragraph and then. It says the exact same thing, and it that one's about a, a there's a dead man hanging in a tree. He's been hung for being a highwayman, and because he was hung using an iron uh, collar instead of a rope, his spirit is trapped in the in the body of the uh, the corpse. His spirit is trapped in the in his body, and three other highwaymen come and cut him down. Uh, at the risk of their own lives, and give them a proper burial inside a inside a uh, bishop's <laughs> grave. <They laughs> dig up the bishop and uh, bury him outside in a hole outside of the consecrated ground, and then bury their friend in in the bishop's grave so that his soul can go free. And it's just such a beautifully uh, funny and irreverent story that I, I really appreciated the the, the plot. What I uh, more and more interesting to me was how much I enjoyed the writing. It was very poetic, uh, but 
using you know the beautiful adjectives and and such that that you you would find in Lovecraft. What what other uh, Dunsany stories are accessible and approachable? Do you know? Um, I'm trying to think of titles offhand. There's a I know, I know these kind of I can't remember what book it's in because I've read bits and bobs and I've bits scattered here and there, but I know you wrote a lot of kind of um, it might be in the fields we love lots of sort of micro short stories mm. which are all kind of almost like little prose poems and a lot of them are kind of just offbeat and strange and uh, some of them are sinister and some of them are whimsical and some of them are just just you know beautifully odd. <laughs> um, what kind of market were they being sold to? Uh, or um, well, I think a lot of his stuff was just appearing in, you know, the the huge rash of sort of Victorian magazines. Of, uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of like before the pulps, there was this just massive market for magazines and periodicals of of all kinds. You know what I mean? And like nearly all the great Victorian authors um, weren't writing books; they were writing for magazines, and then things were collected into books later. <laughs> Uh, he wrote the King of Elfland's Daughter, which I've I've not read, but that uh, that's an influential book, I think, right? Oh yeah, that's one of the big sort the of pro proto fantasy books. You know what I mean? It kind of that lays the ground for your Howards, your Tolkien's, your Lewis, your Moorcock, <laughs> <laughs> um, because he was, I mean, Dunsany. I mean, he had this whole thing of myth making, of building a world with a culture and. Whereas before fantasy works, there were a lot more. Let's go to Fairyland, la 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 la, where he was kind of well. This is another place. It has its history. It has these gods. It has these traditions. It has this geography. And I think he was kind of the first writer sort of to go into that sort of world building. And now you can see that in you can see. I guess that's why Lovecraft thought that this was a Dunsany-esque story because it is so. He in such a short period of time he you know, number of words, he he really give, tries to give you a history of this fictional city mm. and the and there's the valleys nearby and and there's a warden, you know, out, it's it's basically like a he's trying to make it so real that you can't doubt that it is just a dream. Mm. Because usually dreams don't have that le- level of detail, especially in in the naming and and uh, the the history of of whatever fictional land you're living in, it doesn't usually make sense. It's it's so, it seems to hold together in a certain way that gives it a verisimilitude. Yeah, the, the consistency of reality. Yeah. Mm. He's um, he, he, he's never uh, revisited this this land or city, other than you, you mentioned uh, Ola. No, not Olathos. Lomar. Yeah. Right. Mm. So that's mentioned in um, Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth. Um But it is just like a passing a passing reference. And the no Kef turn up get mentioned in um, the horror in the museum. The uh, Noptic Noptic or Nof what? Kef, or yes. Yeah. <laughs> These various what? pronunciations. Um, what, 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 what's in those? You know, I know what's in Necronomicon, but when, what's in those? Nope. No, no, Noctic manuscripts. Um, I don't, well, they they turn up and kind of in the Dreamland stories as well. Of their kind of, 
like the Dreamlands Necronomicon, um, uh, you know, and it deals exclusively. They are kind of, you know, the um, the ancient histories of these lost epochs and tell of the old gods from from what I know of them. <laughs> and the, and there's also the the wisdom of the Zabnarian fathers. And I was thinking, what what's that? Is that like, uh, you know, is that like a book of philosophy? If I remember this, right, there's kind of there's an idea in some of these Duncian stories that there's the little gods of Earth who include, um, I think Zobnar is one of them, uh, Lobon's another, and Nath-Horlath. Um, and they're kind of like Greek gods, and they, you know, descend to Earth and mate with fair maidens and live on mountaintops. But um, they're, they're little weak gods, and the real gods of the universe are, are terrible, blasphemous horrors that bubble and blaspheme at the centre of all infinity. <laughs> Um, there's a story called The Other Gods that introduces these this first idea of these monstrous demon gods and it is about a wise man who seeks to see the little gods of Earth and falls foul of their protectors, the alien outer gods. Sounds good. <laughs> um, the only other, uh, only other thing that I think there is to sort of comment on about this this interesting little story is is that it really, really showcases uh, Lovecraft's interest in in astronomy? Uh, all of the na- all of the stars that are named, I I, I I was like, what's Charles Wayne? I've never heard of that. That's apparently that's uh, the Big Dipper. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, an, an old like a plow or something. Yeah, yeah, because uh, they say in the UK the Big Dipper is also known as as the plow. Hmm. Um, so what's the little dipper, the up, upside down plow? I don't uh, know. <laughs> well, no, because we also called them the great bear, and the other one's the oh, little bear. Okay. Which is right. why the stars in them are Arcturus. Right, and Arcturus winks redly or readily, mm. I think. In this, every star in this, you know, prominent star in the sky, Aldebaran and and uh, the Cassiopeia, all the the. The things you you would see when you're staring out your window through the misty, uh, swampy light, um, you would see. And it's you can almost like if you are looking at a map of the sky and you're reading this story, you can actually see where the guy is looking. Mm-hmm. Right? He's looking up. He looks here. He looks over there. He looks down, and then he looks at Charles Wayne, and he follows the two points at the end up to Polaris, which is sending him a message. And each, or at least several of those stars, all have sort of uh, messages, or at least impressions that they're sending you. So, uh, yeah, Arcturus winks readily from above the cemetery, and Cassiopeia is sort of neutral, um, and Red Aldebaran blinks low in the sky, but never sets and crawls away. Right, it's like they're all giving uh, sort of a life to. Uh, he's giving them uh, not exactly. They're not about destiny, but they're all about. Um, they have a role to play on the to people on Earth if you only pay attention to them, and it. it, it the only other line that's like that in there is right at the beginning when he talks about what the trees are doing, and this is something that you do see. Tam in a lot of 
uh, Philip K. Dick stories is the world is alive. So it says, and in the autumn of the year, when the winds from the north curse and whine, and the red-leaved trees of the swamps mutter things to one another in the small hours of the morning, under the horned waning moon, I sit by the window and blah, blah, blah. So the, the cursing and whining of the wind, okay. But then the, the leaves are chattering to each other. Well, if you read it one way, it's just a metaphorical way of saying, you know, they're making noise. But if you start looking at the stars and thinking that they're, they're blinking messages to you, <laughs> or they have an insane watching eye, you know, it, it, it brings the world alive with a menace and a, a power that is, is very compelling. You have to read more about it. Right? <laughs> a leering star. Yeah, the leer the leering star. Hey, close that window. It's looking down. <laughs> well, so the Polestar does seem to, to speak to him because that poem, isn't there? That it it's it exactly. takes on a life of its own and a personality. And it's you know, as this idea in that there's the idea of the astrological time of that it's when the stars are back in this position. That's when you'll wake up. Six and twenty six thousand years mm. from now. Other stars anon shall rise to the axis of the skies, stars that soothe and stars that bless with a sweet forgetfulness. Only when my round is o'er shall the past disturb thy door. And what's funny is he can't, he's, it, the message is sleep, right? But he says he can't sleep until the clouds come up. Mm. So staring out of the night sky, this is actually what an astronomer does, right? <laughs> if, uh, or at least back in the in the day, that's what astronomers did before we got outside the atmosphere. Is is if if it's at night and this the, there's good seeing, right? There's clear skies, then you don't sleep. But if the clouds come up uh, and cover the the sky, that's the time to sleep because you can't do your work. But he's he's uh. He was, uh, I believe, he wanted to be an astronomer at one point. Yes, he was one of his first loves, astronomy. Of, um, I think what held him up is because of his pre-Europe childhood sicknesses, he never got his um, high school diploma, and so he could right. never go to college. And uh, <laughs> despite claiming that he had, I believe. Well, yes, uh, <laughs> he was very much kind of. Well, I could have gotten therefore. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.